This is a Crossroads International Church podcast, bringing lives together. Please visit our website at xrds.nl for more information about us, our service times, and for other relevant resources. Well, uh, greetings, uh, beautiful uh, and precious uh, Crossroads community. I, and it's not just any greeting. I, I greet you with a New Year's greeting, and here is my prayer for you. It's from the book of Numbers, and I pray this for each and every one of us as we step into 2022. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's my prayer for us all this year. So friends, we are busy with a series that we've entitled Mythbusters, and Manuel did a splendid job last week, uh, and I want to use this opportunity to look at today and next week at a book of the Bible that for many is thinking, as we're talking about myth-busting, for many this book is mysterious, has been misunderstood misapplied, and I want us to take a look at this book, and of course, I'm talking about the book of Revelation. Friends, I cannot tell you how often this book of Revelation has been quoted at me (laughs) over the last few months, and seeing as we're talking myth-busting, let's today and next week have a look at this book and hopefully will demystify it for us a little bit. And so I encourage you to get paper, take some notes. I have picked a couple of chapters throughout this book which are key, and I want to focus on them. Today we're going to focus on chapter one. Next week it's going to be chapter four and a couple of other chapters because Obviously, I can't in two weeks do the entire book, but if we have an understanding of these couple of chapters, I believe it will unlock for us and it will set the tone and set the scene for us that will help us to unlock the rest of the book of Revelation. Let's demystify the book of Revelation a little bit. Let's come to understand its true purpose and the true reason that it was written and given to the church. And in that, today also, I want this to serve as my New Year's message to you, Crossroads community. So, let's begin then very quickly with the word revelation, the book revelation. What does it mean? It means to unveil. It means to, as the name suggests, to reveal. Reveal what? Unveil what? Well, we're told in the first few Uh, sentences, the first few verses. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Primarily, it's not the revelation of how the world's going to end. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's the first thing we must understand when we read the book of Revelations. I am meant to, once I've read this book, come to a deeper and a greater understanding of who Jesus is, and then connected to that, 
who I am and my place in this world, and that should shape my worldview. I want to suggest to us right at the beginning here two principles, if you will, two rules of thumb that we would, should always keep in mind when approaching the book of Revelation, when we read and interpret. Here are two things we must always keep in mind because I believe when we do so, it'll keep us on the right track. And the first is the principle of there is only one Jesus. The principle of one Jesus. Let me explain. As I read the book of Revelation and I come to interpret and I come to conclusions and I come to understand, I must always make sure that the Jesus that I come to conclude, the Jesus revealed to me in the book of Revelation, does not contradict that Jesus revealed to me throughout the rest of Scripture. There is only one Jesus. Jesus can't be saying and doing something in the Gospels, and then he does and says something very different, and it paints a picture of a different Jesus in the book of Revelation. That's the first principle. There is only one Jesus. The Jesus of Revelation cannot contradict the Jesus throughout Scripture. Second principle we need to keep in mind to help guide us whenever we read something and try to interpret what this book is saying to us. Second principle to guide us is this. It is the principle of original audience. So what I mean by this, let me explain. The interpretation that we reach about passages and about this book in the book of Revelation must surely be accessible to the original audience. And this is important. So, if I read the book of Revelation and I conclude uh, or, or interpret it as ABC, but the original audience to whom this letter was written cannot come to that same conclusion, I need to stop. Because as I read this, I must remember that this book was written first and foremost to a specific people, a specific audience, the churches in Asia Minor, the first followers of Jesus. And so the conclusions I come to when reading this letter that was written to an audience must be accessible to them. It must make sense to them. I cannot come to conclusions about what this book is saying that the first original audience will not come to. An important principle to remember when interpreting the book of Revelation. Further, to help us understand the book of Revelation, we must talk about context. And I've spoken about context before. Context is so important. It, to extrapolate meaning, we must understand context. Context gives meaning. Now, we know that context is made up of things like author, audience, social setting, language, date. And what makes it so easy for us with the book of Revelation is we have all those things. We have those things. And because we have those things, it helps us to derive and interpret and to discover meaning. So, for example, the author, we know John. John was a leader of those early followers of Jesus, a pastor to those early followers. 
we know that he was removed from his people. He was exiled, taken away from his, his congregation, as it were, and exiled alone on an island, the island of Patmos. So I know that. And with that knowledge, I come to read. We know about the audience. We know that it was written to those early followers of Jesus, the seven churches in Asia Minor. Okay, I remember that when I tried to understand. The social setting, we know that Rome was in power. We know that at that time that this was written, Rome was exceptionally and particularly cruel in persecuting and torturing and making life incredibly difficult for those who have chosen to follow Jesus rather than Caesar. And so the temptation was, listen, if I just follow Caesar rather, life will be so much easier. Is it really worth it? Shouldn't I just give up and, and bow down to Caesar? That's the social setting. Now, with that in mind, understanding that context about the author, about the audience, and about the social setting, let me ask you this question. If you were a pastor, taken away from your people, you haven't seen your people, you're not with them, knowing the situation they find themselves in, knowing that they're being persecuted and killed and tortured and life is really dark and really difficult, what would be the one message you would want to give to them? What would want to be the purpose that you want to put in this letter to them? Yeah, to encourage them, to give them hope. To say to them, hey, I know it's difficult. And I know that it looks to you like Jesus is not victorious and he's not in charge and he's not in control that Rome is, but Rome's not. Jesus is victorious. He is, in fact, despite how it might look, he is in control. Take hope. Be encouraged. Don't give up the fight. Stay faithful. And that is the primary purpose of the book of Revelation. Not to explain to us how the world's going to end. I want to say something. I don't know if I should. <laughs> Let me say it. Not to tell us about Bill Gates, but to tell us about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Who he is and who we are in him. To give us hope and encouragement to stay faithful and stay strong despite how dark and difficult things are around us. And the way that John does this is actually quite brilliant. Quite brilliant how he does this. Other than the metaphoric language and the beautiful imagery that he uses to write, he uses two main tools to deliver this message of encouragement and hope. The first is he uses his vast knowledge of Scripture. Here's what I mean. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, yet over 500, quote, uh, five, over 500 references to the Old Testament without a single direct quote from the Old Testament. Brilliant. Over 130 of those 
are from the book of Ezekiel. He uses, from Ezekiel 40 onwards, Ezekiel's vision, he uses them as teaching moments because he knows that when they read them, they would like, oh yeah, I, I know where that is. I know what that's from. And he uses that to teach them. He uses his vast knowledge of Scripture. So here's what I want to say to you about the book of Revelation, given this, what I've just said. Hey, listen, there's a reason Revelation comes at the end. It's assuming you've read all the other stuff. You don't just start watching a movie the last five minutes. You're going to sit there thinking, what? What's going on here? I don't understand it. You watch the whole movie, and then the ending makes sense. So to read and understand Revelation, you must have knowledge of Scripture. You must read the Bible. The more you have knowledge of Scripture, the more the book of Revelation will make sense. And you'll come to discover it's not a frightening, a fearful book. It's not a mysterious book. It's actually quite simple and quite exquisite. Beautiful. The other, the second tool that John uses to deliver his message of encouragement and hope is this. He uses, as is so often a tool for many who, who write and speak, Paul did the same thing. He uses the social setting and social customs and social Greek and Roman phrases and cultural understandings of that day to make his points and to deliver his message. Paul did the same. You remember Paul in Acts 17 when he went to Athens? And he was in Athens and he was dismayed. He saw all the idols and he saw all these statues and he saw all these uh, uh, false altars. And there was this one altar in Acts 17 and it was inscribed to an unknown God. And Paul goes, as he's addressing the people of Athens, he says, um, can I tell you his name? Let me tell you who he is. And John does the same thing. Let me explain to you. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Revelation 7, we read about all these people in white garments, covered in blood. Huh? What is that about? Now, in those days, in those times, there was a custom. The Roman emperors would go through a ritual, what they called the ritual of immortality. And here's what they did. The Roman emperor... To, to show that he's immortal, right? would dress in white robes, stand underneath a canopy, like a sheet of some kind. Above that, they would slaughter an animal, slaughter a cow. The blood would be collected on the sheet, and it would act as a shower, and it would drip blood onto the Roman emperor and staining his white robes with blood to say he's immortal. John takes that cultural custom of the day in Revelation, and he says, no, no, the emperor is not immortal. And what he says to his people, to the church, with the multitude in white robes, and he's saying, it's you, the church, those who are followers of Jesus, covered, washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are immortal to encourage, to give them hope. Rome's not going to be around forever and immortal. It's not them. It's you. Isn't it beautiful? You are the ones who, because of the blood of the Lamb, 
are immortal. And he uses that imagery because they would understand what he was talking about. He does the same for titles. So let's then begin to jump into chapter 1. And so we read this first title. So he uses this, um, verses 4 and 5, Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches of the province of Asia, um, Asia, he says, grace and peace to you from, okay, so he's saying, I greet you, grace and peace to you from, and look what he says, from him who is and was and who is to come. Well, now we know that that was the title for the Greek mythological god Zeus. That's how you, Zeus was always introduced. And John goes, no, he's not worthy. He's a myth. He's not worthy of that title. Our God, Yahweh, God the Father, God Almighty, thank you very much. We'll he's worthy of that title. He is the one who is and was and is to come. And he, and he ascribes that to God the Father. Beautiful. And that's what he does throughout the book. He says, no, no, thank you. We'll, we'll have that title. Zeus is nothing. He's not worthy of that. Let's get into it. So then the book of Revelation, chapter 1, starts with this greeting. It's quite beautiful. Notice what's going on here. Grace and peace to you, beautiful people of God, from him who is and was and who is to come, God the Father. Also, grace and peace to you from, greeting from, the seven spirits before his throne. We know from Jewish cultural understanding that the number seven is to represent perfection. Well, not just perfection, infinite perfection, more specifically. So who's he talking about here? The Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ. So what do we have here? We have a Trinitarian greeting. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening. It's beautiful. I greet you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then, remember what this book is about. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember John's purpose here to give you hope and encourage. And the way I'm going to do that right at the beginning, and that's why chapter 1 is so important, because it unlocks so much of the rest of the book for us. He says, now I want you to know some things about Jesus. I want you to know who he is. You're facing a dark situation, church. So I want to remind you about who Jesus is. And then he goes on and he mentions three things. He says then, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is, and here he goes, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now it's getting good. Now it's getting good. Here's what he's saying as he's writing to encourage and give hope to the people of God. He's saying, listen, you must know who Jesus is. And this is what I want to share with you as we step into the year 2022. If you know anything about Jesus, I hope you know these three things. I hope you believe these three things, and I hope you carry them with you 
into this year. You see, it's because when we know and believe these three things, that it changes how we live, and more importantly, it changes how we see the world and the events of the world around us. So what's John saying? He's saying, number one, I want you to know he is the faithful witness. So what's he saying? He's saying, hey, whatever Jesus says about life, Whatever Jesus says about the Father, whatever Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, whatever Jesus says about you, you can trust him. He's trustworthy. So church struggling, know that whatever he says about you and your future and about the world and about God and about life and about purpose, you can trust him. Can you see what he's doing? He's encouraging and he's giving hope. You can trust what Jesus says. He is the firstborn of the dead. So here he's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. So he's reminding them, hey, he's alive. He's not dead. He's not just some historical character. He's alive. He's with you. And because he is the firstborn of the dead, because he is alive, I can face tomorrow. Can you see what John's doing in this book? You're facing tough times, but Jesus is alive, so you can face whatever is before you. You can face tomorrow. And then he says, he is the ruler. In other words, know this. He reigns. Know that he is in control. Know that he is in charge. It might look to you like he is not. There might be chaos and there might be empires and kingdoms around you that think, they go, that, think that they are immortal, that think they're going to be around forever and think they are all powerful and that they're in charge, but they are not. Jesus rules and reigns and he's the king of all kings. And when I know these three things about who Jesus is, it changes how I step into 2022. It changes how I view me and you and the world around me. Isn't it beautiful? But wait, it gets better. Then he goes on in chapter 1. He says, not only because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Not only do I want you to know who Jesus is, I want you to know what he does and what he does for you. So then he carries on, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1. It says, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sin by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever and again to him be glory for power ever. That was a Roman emperor title. And John goes, no, we'll have that. Thank you very much. Caesar is not worthy of that. Jesus is. So he says three things. He says, I want you to know a pastor encouraging his people facing difficult times. The first thing I want you to know is that he loves you. Will you reflect on that for a minute? 
The second thing I want you to know what Jesus does for you is he forgives you. So we've learned about Jesus. He is a lover. He is a liberator. And thirdly, he's a life giver. Life giver in the sense he makes us, he gives us our primary identity. It is in him and because of him that we understand what it means to be authentically human, that I discover my identity, who I am meant to be, who I was created to be. What is it? A priest. So when someone asks you what you do for a living, who you are, you tell them, I'm a priest. (laughs) What do priests do? They serve God and God's kingdom and God's people. And so by giving us our primary identity, he gives us life. I pray that as you step into this new year, you will know who Jesus is and what he does and wants to do for you. Love you, liberate you, give you life by showing you who you really were meant to be. Carry on. I'm going to take a few extra minutes today, so please forgive me. Um, I hope you're finding this helpful. So then we carry on, chapter 1. You can go and read from verse 9, but for the sake of time, I'm going to jump to verse 12. So remember, here's John seeing this vision, this dream, this vision, and he is the witness to what he's seeing. Here's what he writes, verse 9. He says, I turned around to see this voice that was speaking to me. John says, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now we know robe, golden sash, we know that from Hebrew scriptures, it refers to the priest. So we know, okay, he's talking about Jesus, our high priest. So, so, so this is Jesus now who, who he's seeing. Okay, so there we go from there. Verse 16, we carry on. And and now he's describing Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. What's John saying? So he's talking about Jesus holding in his right hand seven stars. Will you note where the sword is not? It's not in his right hand, which is the traditional symbolic understanding of strength and power and authority and might. Where is the sword? His mouth. You remember Ephesians when we spoke about the armor of God? The sword, the double-edged sword was what the? The word of God. So the sword is sheathed in his mouth. Symbolic of the word of God. This is so beautiful. Again, what's our principle? This is consistent with Jesus. So we know Jesus does not come to us in violence. He does not come to us like a soldier and a warrior with a sword in his right hand. 
It's sheathed in his mouth. It's symbolic of the word of God. The truth. That's power and strength. The word of God. It's consistent because when we read about Jesus elsewhere, Jesus says things like those who live by the sword will die by the sword. You will never read of Jesus in the book of Revelation carrying a sword in his right hand. He does not come to us in violence. And immediately I cast my mind back to almost exactly a year ago. Images of people storming buildings in violence in the name of Jesus many and in the name of faith. It's not consistent. Jesus doesn't come to us in violence. What is in his right hand? The seven stars. Now, at this point, we don't know what the seven stars are. We, th- we, we, can, we, 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 can, we think we might know, but let's read on. Verse 20, it tells us what the seven stars are. The mystery, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So it is, notice what is in his right hand. Remember, the hand that normally holds the weapon. This is so good. The hand that is strong and powerful and has authority. Whenever we read in the Bible about angels, we are not talking about little winged creatures. We are meant to understand we're talking about what's spoken about is messengers. So in his right hand is the messengers of the church. You and me. The messengers of the church. Stars. When do you see stars? When it is dark. Here's what John is saying. When it's dark. And you're being persecuted and you're being oppressed. And there's chaos around you. You see, because here's what John now does. In the first part of chapter 1, he tells us who Jesus is and what he does. In the second part of chapter 1, he tells us who we are and what we are meant to do. He says, when it is dark and things are difficult, stars, you are heavenly. Beautiful. You are heavenly, and you are the ones who will shine into the darkness. And it connects with the lampstands. Church. In essence, you are my weapon, (laughs) you are my instrument to shine light in the darkness. And how do you do that? What is your weapon, as it were? The word of God. By speaking me and my word. And what is it? He is a lover and a liberator. To speak love and forgiveness and freedom. When you speak that, that shines light into the darkness. Church, know who you are. You are held in his right hand. And nothing and no one can 
take you and snatch you out of his right hand. So that's where you are in his right hand. But know also this, that you have a mission. You are called to, with the word of God, shine in the darkness. Amen. I think that's me done. That's chapter one for the most part. Next week, we're going to jump to chapter four because then there is a big shift that takes place. Uh, But this sets the scene. It helps us to understand John's purpose with this book, his goal, and his primary vision uh, for what he's wanting to do. Who Jesus is, what he does, who you are, and what you and I are called and meant to be, to give hope and encouragement. Will you take this with you into the new year and may it in some way begin to bust some myths or demystify the book of Revelation for you? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do and want to do for us and in our lives. Thank you for loving me, forgiving me, and giving me life and purpose and identity. Lord, as I step into this year, as we step into a season where, Lord, oh, we want to be back at church. It seems that this thing might be extended, this lockdown, for a little while still. May I carry in this dark time with me the knowledge, the truth, knowing and understanding, Lord Jesus, that number one, I can trust what you say about me and about life and about this world, that you're a faithful witness. I can trust you. May the knowledge that you are alive and not dead change how I face my troubles, my past, my present, my future. And Lord, even when things look like you are not in control of what's going on, may I remember that you reign and you are very much in charge and very much in control. And we'll understand why next week when we look at chapter four. Bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.